Hello and welcome to episode 49 of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini and we all know that being a parent of a special needs child is a lot of work. Many moments can be incredible, exhilarating, and full of amazing wonder, but it can also be extremely stressful. Dealing with schools, social situations, family situations, it can seem like everywhere you turn there's another opportunity for stress. So what can you do to help you deal with all the stresses and keep yourself from coming a part of the seams? Well, our guest on this episode has some great advice. Jean Holdhouse is a licensed independent social worker with Pine Rest Christian Mental Health Services in Pella, Iowa. She specializes in dealing with anxiety issues, parenting and family issues, and working with special needs children. She talks about setting boundaries, dealing with emotions, including anger in children and adults, and how to deal with school anxiety issues. I started off with asking her about her background and how she became interested in dealing with families of special needs children. Well, I started my career as an elementary education teacher, and so I spent the first 10 years teaching um, kindergarten through eighth grade and enjoyed being able to work with students and found that it was important to attend to those students um, that had special needs within my classroom um, and I also found that challenging. And then as I transitioned to working um, in the mental health field, it became even more important because I saw more of those clients and their parents in my office, and so I did a lot of background kind of learning how to help in the midst of that. Now, you stress the importance about setting boundaries with special needs children. Can you give me some details about how parents can get that established? I think what tends to happen, it's always difficult to set boundaries with children in the best of circumstances, um, but when you have a special needs child of some sort, I think um, oftentimes children, uh, parents will err on one side or the other. They either continue to expect that child to function as though they didn't have some special needs or concerns, or um, out of guilt or fear of asking too much, they don't set boundaries because they're not wanting to ask more than they should. And either of those, they're kind of the two ditches, and either of those ditches end up with a very frustrated child or a very out-of-control child. So it's important to identify what is this child capable of doing. And if they're capable of doing it, they should be required to do it. Right. Um, just, the, just the same as you would do with a more normally able child. If you have a child that has special abilities, you need to set the boundary in on kind of on the basis of what are they capable of doing and then expecting that of them rather than compensating for them and doing it for them or expecting them to do things they're not capable of and giving them consequences when they can't. Right. Yeah. I think that a lot of parents, I know we've made some mistakes like that too with our son. You know, we tended to think that he wasn't capable of doing things, and it turned out uh, he proved to us that he's more than capable on a lot of things. Right. And children don't mind playing that game. If they can get you to do something for them, they will. Oh, yeah. Because it, it's to their benefit. <laughs> right, yeah. It's that old, uh, yeah, you can, oh, I can't reach that. Uh, I, can't, uh, I can't do that. Can you do it for me? You know. Right, yes. So one of the things you have to do is try out and see if they can do it Mm -hmm. and kind of always be kind of pushing that limit a little bit. Like if you don't ever leave the toy out of the child's reach, they never learn to crawl or walk. Right. Um, So that that level of frustration, but you don't want it to be so far beyond what they can currently do that they're just defeated and don't try. Right, right. Now what about kids who can't communicate? Now we know that even those who are unable to speak and still understand what's being said to them, what are some of the methods that parents can use that uh, would help establish boundaries for kids like that? 
particularly for those children who can understand um, language, but we're always communicating even if we don't understand language. So it's still important to set boundaries with them. You're going to use whatever means. We develop ways that we communicate with our children even if they can't speak. So you want to go through those avenues to continue to set boundaries as well. You may not be using words to set the boundaries. You'd be using more actions Hmm. um, and then communicating with them, no, you're going to need to do this in whatever way is appropriate for them, um, given the way they're communicating with you. Right. Now, being a parent of a special needs child can also be really stressful. Uh, What are some of the problems that parents talk to you about for stress, and uh, what are some of the methods that parents can use to help themselves in situations that are stressful? I think um, having a special needs child really creates some unique circumstances. Parents oftentimes feel like they can't leave the child in the care of others because others won't understand what to do, or honestly, they have needs that the average babysitter can't attend to. So oftentimes those parents end up being kind of the sole providers for their children and feeling very guilty if they're not with that child and able to attend to 100% of their needs, which creates a, a lot of stress for the parent. And it's important to kind of find that network of support, whether or not that's professional people that are providing respite care or whether it's um, friends or family that you teach them how to actually care for the child so that you can be away from the child some, because we need space away to rejuvenate. You need to do those things to take care of yourself first. Um, One of the things that always struck me and one of the lessons I learned as a parent was um, I travel some, and and on the airlines they always do that thing where they tell you, you know, if if the plane is going to crash that... um, the air mass will fall from the sky, and they say, if you're traveling with small children, put yours on first. And I always thought that that was ludicrous, and that I was going to, you know, I would always take care of my child first. And then I had a flight attendant one time in therapy, and so I was making polite conversation at the end of the hour and said, you know, I think that's really stupid. And she said, oh, no, if you don't put yours on first, the child probably is going to be scared and resist you. And if you don't put yours on first, both of you will pass out and die. But if you put yours on first, then you'll be able to keep breathing even if the child passes out and take care of them. And I thought, oh, my goodness, that is so what we have to do in parenting. If we don't take care of ourselves first, we run out of steam, and then we're ill-equipped or unable even to care for our child. I think that becomes especially true with special needs children when those needs are so much higher and when you're having to interface with schools and multiple medical providers and just all of those other resources, if you don't take care of yourself first, Mm -hmm. you will not have what you need to take care of your child. And then if you're unwilling to let other people help or to train them and ask for what you need and seek out what you need, you also will run out of steam. You cannot be their only provider. Right, right. That That's a really good metaphor. I like that. Uh, yeah, because that's the one thing I always hear from a lot of parents that, uh, you know, listen to the podcast as well as parents I know personally. You you know, when you have a special needs child, depending upon the severity, you just can't find a babysitter. Or, right. Uh, it's, it's hard to find them. So, yeah, I, yeah, that's a great idea, finding people you trust who you can teach who are willing to help out. And one of the resources you can use if you're anywhere near a college that's training teachers, um, a lot of times the teachers that are, the, the students that are in the special education programs at those schools need practical experience. Oh. And they're willing to, they want to help. And so this is, they're ideal babysitters um, because you can, they're wanting to deal with special needs children, they're wanting to learn about it, oh. and they're teachable. That's great. That's a great idea. And uh, just about every community has a community college. It seems these right. days. 
So that's a great idea, yeah. Now, going through the special education process and negotiating with schools can also be a huge amount of stress for parents. So what are some of the tips that you can offer parents for dealing with schools and special education plans like IEPs and 504s? Right. Those are, um, I think, as a teacher, it was imp- it was extremely difficult. I was a regular education teacher, which meant that I had had um, one or two classes on how to deal with special needs children, mm-hmm. and yet and these um, children were being integrated into my classroom, and I needed to figure out how to provide for them, and it was assumed I would know what to do. Ah. And I think that's another place where parents can get in two ditches. They can either view the school as their adversary, um, or they can believe that the school is going to know everything that needs to be done. Right. And it's important to look at how can I partner with them, and you kind of have to become the expert on your child in some ways, mm-hmm. um, but then be willing to join forces and see them as on, see the people within the school as on your team mm-hmm. um, rather than the adversary. Um, they're on your team, but they're stressed. They're stressed and they're stretched incredibly thin. They're being asked. And when I was a teacher, I had 189 students in my classroom in the course of a day, mm. um, and so there I was supposed to attend to the needs of 189 students, some of whom were talented and gifted, and some of whom had special needs um, on the other end of that spectrum. And I could not be the expert on every one. So the more parents would be willing to cooperate and communicate with me about what worked without telling me what I had to do, the more it was helpful. So it's that fine line if you want to help them know as teachers what has worked for you as you're trying to deal with these things without saying, you've got to do it my way. Right. Because it may not work to do it your way in that setting. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of like, how do you form a team and do what's going to be in the best interest of that child. And you may know more about what the child is capable of than the teacher does, Um, especially at the beginning of the year. Mm -hmm. So you have to look at how you help that teacher know those things without talking down to the teacher um, or letting the teacher off the hook and not and not requiring them to do what's needed. Right, right, and it is you know it is relationship building too. Just like you say, I mean, I've uh, I've seen teachers that uh, can do a tremendous uh, amount of help with uh, special needs kids when they have the right kind of cooperation from parents. But it, yes. it really, you know, it can so quickly become adversarial based on just emotions rather than actual uh, what's really happening. And uh, it's it's a tough balance for a lot of people. It's a very tough balance. Yeah. And the teachers are stressed, too, because, like you say, they're being pushed in all kinds of different directions. They're being to take, forced to take on more and more work, and a lot of them are being paid far less than they used to be paid. And, uh, you know, they have to come up with their own expenses as well because uh, the schools won't supply things anymore. And so if they want to do their jobs, they have to purchase products. And so there's a lot going on. Right. So um, now you have some really good blog articles on your page. Uh, one of them is about children's emotions from the inside out, and it's based on the movie Inside Out. And you make some uh-huh. great suggestions about dealing with childhood emotions, which are actually a lot more complex than people realize. Could you go over some of that with us? Sure. Um, I think we, we kind of expect that children are going to ha- um, deal with emotions just like we do as adults, and we forget that while children come kind of hardwired to express emotions, um, that doesn't mean they know how to identify them, how to label them, and what to do with them. So if you think about uh, a newborn, they're really good, and their first way of communicating with us is by making us feel what they're feeling. 
um, a child, um, they're hungry, and so they become distressed about it and they begin to cry. What that does is it creates within the parents that exact same emotion they're feeling, and that's the first way they communicate. And so the parent then moves to attend to the child in an attempt to not only take care of what the child is feeling, but to take care of what they're feeling. So then as they grow, we have to help them begin to label those feelings so that they, because they don't have words for what those feelings are. So the first way they learn labels for feelings is by when they're, let's say, they look sad and mom or dad says, oh, you look like you're really sad. Now, Now the child has a label for, oh, this feeling equals sad. But sometimes we expect them to be able to do that without us having to label it first for them. So it's really important to help them kind of label what they're feeling. And then once they kind of can label it, they have to know how do they manage kind of the impulse that comes with it. Because um, we are born with kind of impulses. When I'm angry, I want to hit. I want to lash out at something. When I'm sad, I want to cry and, you know, curl up in a ball somewhere. So they have to figure out what to do with the impulses that they're feeling that go with those emotions so that they're handling those emotions in ways that are socially appropriate. Um, and we have to remember that we have to teach them to do that. And one of the primary ways that we teach them to do that is by how we model it. If when we become angry, we're throwing things and yelling and screaming, we can't really expect the child to do something else. And yet a lot of us as parents want them to do as we say, not as we do. Right. So we kind of have to label it and then teach them what to do to manage it. And part of that is looking, helping them look at what are going to be the consequences. Well, you can choose to hit your brother when he takes away your toy, but if you do, it's going to mean you have to have a timeout. Or you could choose to come and tell mom and we'll work it out, kind of helping them know what the choices are and seeing the consequences, because they don't naturally see the consequences of their choices. Um, We do, because we're adults and we think like adults, they're not many adults. They don't think like adults, and it's really hard for them to see the consequences of a choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and going on with that, anger issues, of course, like you were saying, primary source of stress for kids, including special need kids. So what are some of the best ways of parents to be able to help their kids get through their anger problems without escalating things, as unfortunately often happens? Um, and, and that's true for any child, but I think becomes more of an issue oftentimes with special needs children because they become frustrated, um, particularly if they're in that, in that space where they can see that other children their age can do things that they can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, that is extremely frustrating for a special needs child. Um, and anger is always a second emotion. We always feel something else first, and then anger is what we use to kind of cope with that. So oftentimes what they're feeling is is hurt or scared or something else. And so we have to look at what is that underlying emotion and kind of begin to work at attending to that um, emotion. As a parent, that's how you're thinking is what's underneath this, what's driving it, mm-hmm. and kind of looking at how do I attend to that. But then you also have to teach just anger management techniques like when you feel mad, take three deep breaths. Mm-hmm. When you feel mad work at punching a pillow, not punching somebody else. When you feel mad, work at, um, I call it, shake it out, kind of loosen up your muscles and relax a little bit. They just kind of shake their arms and kind of work to relax, kind of giving them things they can do rather than telling them not to feel that. Right, because often, yeah, the anger, you know, you need to do something because there's a physical aspect to anger that people are quick to try to uh, dispel or 
you know, put down. Right. Now, anxiety in school, as we're going along here, it's all kind of tying together. School anxiety, another issue, sometimes going back to school, uh, sometimes it's about through the school year ongoing issues. What are some of the ways that parents can help their kids understand that their anxieties are, you know, ordinary or normal, as we could say, but uh, help them deal with their fears and help them deal with the anxiety that they're feeling? I think it's important to remember that emotions have what we would call a function. They're always trying to alert us to something or help us to know. And oftentimes fear is trying to help us know that there's a potential problem or there's a potential danger. And um, the danger may be real or it may be perceived, but it's real to the child. So if you can help them kind of identify what is the fear trying to tell you, what are you afraid of, what do you think might happen, and then actually make a plan to deal with that. We tend to tell children to just, well, you shouldn't be afraid of that. It's not going to happen. But it's very real to them. It's kind of like trying to convince a child in the middle of the night that there's no one in the, there's not a boogeyman in the closet. It doesn't do any good to tell them it's not there. It's a better thing to make a plan. So can we turn a light on or what can we do? Same with school. Oftentimes, especially special needs children, are afraid of being made fun of, afraid of not being able to do things well enough. If they're very dependent upon their parent for some of the things that they need, they're afraid that their needs won't be met in some way. So kind of helping to identify um, what are those things that the fear is about and then how can we make a plan to deal with it. And sometimes that plan has to be incremental. Um, maybe if they're afraid of being without mom or dad because they're pretty dependent upon them, they need mom or dad to check in with them um, once during the day in the beginning or to go for the first half hour and then leave or something like that that helps them to transition across to something new. Um, But recognizing that the fear is real for the child and it's trying to tell us something rather than just telling them not to be afraid. Okay. You also have a great blog post about finding calm during chaos, and a lot of parents can find themselves in chaotic situations. Can you go over some of those suggestions about how parents can better navigate their own emotions when everything seems to be falling apart? Sure. I think any time you get children in a room, and for very long it can get really chaotic, um, especially when you're trying to attend to multiple things at the same time, and parents end up doing that a lot. We're trying to make supper while we're trying to manage the child, um, Mm -hmm. while we're trying to get the child to do something as well sometimes. So it's important to remember that when we're finding ourselves in those situations, um, part of what we have to do is to control what we're attending to. We tend to be doing, try to do a whole bunch of things at once, and the more, um, the more chaotic it feels, the more our brain just kind of races from thing to thing to thing to thing. So what you want to do is to get really present in the moment you're in right now. So what can I see right now? What can I feel right now? What can I hear? Use your senses to make you aware of what's actually in this moment versus what am I worrying about from the future or the past that isn't actually happening right now, but it's adding to the chaos of right now. Um, So you want to kind of get yourself back to the present moment rather than, okay, I need to fix up or, and then I need to put them to bed and then I need to, and that, that just adds to the chaos. The chaos of this moment is enough. We don't want to add other moments to it. Right. And then you want to work to stick to the facts. Part of what will happen when we get in chaotic moments is we begin to do the what ifs um, or the coulda, shoulda, oughtas instead mm. of what are the facts of this moment, what's actually happening right now. So um, a child can begin to kind of have a meltdown, and in our head we begin to worry about what if they never learn to, what if it's always, and we, we get away from the fact. The fact is right now this child is having difficulty managing their emotions or being obedient. That doesn't mean they're going to forever be that way. So if you can bring yourself back to the moment you're in, and then as, as 
kind of contrary as this might seem, if you can work at doing just one thing at a time, all of the research would say when we're multitasking, we actually become less efficient at everything and more overwhelmed. Um, and that seems like we should have to, like, that's impossible. You can't just do one thing at a time. But if you actually try to work at that, you really can do one thing at a time. Um, even if it's I'm making supper and I'm watching the child, well, while I'm doing one thing, I'm doing that. I'm not trying to, maybe I put a movie on so the child can watch a movie while I'm peeling the potatoes, um, instead of trying to talk to them and peel the potatoes at the same time. Because right. um, that will, the more you try to multitask, the more you will actually feel overwhelmed and chaotic. Ah, okay. And I know a lot of parents worry about, you know, well, am I giving the child too much screen time? But you're right. I think it's just deal with it right now and worry about that later when it actually becomes an issue. Right. And you you can put a, you can kind of have like a bag of things that you go to for when you need that child to be occupied by something. It doesn't have to be screen time, but you can, if you have kind of a list maybe even posted on the refrigerator of things you could go to, if you need to kind of have them do something while you're working a little bit independent of them, it's hard to think of them in the moment, and that's why we'll resort to screen time. But if you have kind of brainstormed with your partner, brainstormed with teachers and things, what are things they could do independently on their own um, for just brief periods of time, then that's helpful. That's great. That's great. Now, Pine Rest has locations in West Michigan and Central Iowa, and of course, you're based in the Pello, Iowa Clinic. What are some good internet resources for parents who don't live in either West Michigan or Central Iowa that they can keep in mind for this sort of thing? Sure. Um, there are tons of blogs. Um, Pine Rest has a blog that has lots of different resources written by lots of different professionals, and there are um, lots of resources specific to whatever the disability would be of the child that you can access online. Um, two of the ones I really like to go to, um, the U.S. Department of Education, their website has a lot of um, links to other resources around special needs. Mm. And then each state also has a Department of Education, and that state will have links to things within your area. Oh, um, and the other place is the American Academy of Children and Adolescent Psychiatry, um, mm. Their web page has links to special needs sorts of resources as well. And those are two sites that are very trustworthy um, and are going to give you good links to good information. But I would just encourage parents, Google and spend some time researching the things that you need. It's amazing how many resources are out there. Now, you always have to kind of run things by the screen of just because it's on the Internet doesn't make it a fact. Right. Um, and you want to seek reputable sources, but there's... There are a lot of resources out there. The resources vary state to state, um, even within the educational system. Um, there, are, there are government federal mandates, but then each state gets to decide how to implement those. So you have mm -hmm. to kind of research what's in your area, um, mm -hmm. and there are just lots of different resources available. What I find parents most, um, a lot of parents are unwilling to access those resources because somehow feels to them like they shouldn't need them. And I would encourage parents to take full advantage of all of the resources you can find. Right. Right. Well, you know, it's free. Yes. So at least as far as the stuff that comes from the states and the federal government, so why not use it? Right. And one of the ways to think about that is when you're working, it's not free. You paid for it. Your taxes are paying for it. So That's true. why would you not use what you paid for? Exactly. That's a great, great suggestion. Well, I appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk with us, Gene. Uh, we'll put, a, of course, links of everything that you mentioned here and also your own blog post and all that from Pine Rest up on the page for this podcast uh, when we put it online then. Okay. 
That sounds great. Thanks for letting me talk with you. My thanks again to Jean Holdhouse of Pine Rest Christian Mental Health. We have links to every online resource she mentioned on the website page for this episode at specialparentsconfidential.com. A reminder that if you found this episode helpful or any episode we've done, please consider contributing to support Special Parents Confidential. We have a link to our PayPal account where you can donate any amount you wish to help us continue to produce these episodes. Thanks for your support. And that's it for this episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.